HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes if you like it, and please reach out if you have any questions or comments. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at the Foodballer. I want to start today's show, which is number 72 of Feast Your Ears, with something that I'm going to try out, uh, just mentioning something I cooked this week, uh, every day, or every week at the beginning of the show. So this week, what I wanted to talk about was natto, um, which we'll get to later in the show. I'll talk with my guest, Ryan Carney, about natto, because he spent a lot of time in Japan, but I made some natto at home. I tried out making my own natto from adzuki beans, um, which are red, small red beans. They're a little bit sweeter than soybeans, which natto is traditionally made from. Um, and natto is a, an alkaline ferment. So that, if anybody is listening, is interested in, in natto, um, alkaline fermentations are somewhat rare. Mostly when we're fermenting food, it is much more acidic, sauerkraut, vinegar, uh, things like that. And in natto, the bacteria actually makes the beans more alkaline, and that is what preserves them. Uh, And if you've never tasted natto and you want to, I will be serving natto at the breakfast Break Festival. I'm trying to figure out how to say that. Break Festival. Uh, the Breakfast Festival that Extra Crispy is hosting on June 10th in Industry City. So we're going to set up there with a photo booth that will take your picture while you're tasting natto for the first time. Uh, and then you can have that and put it on your social media. So we're going to try that out. So today, my guest is Ryan Carney. Uh, Ryan is the co-founder of Kinfolk 
That's Kinfolk with a backwards K at the beginning of their logo, not the matte-covered Perfect Bound magazine of the same name, but we'll talk a little <laughs> bit about that later. Uh, Ryan created Kinfolk as a place to hang out with his friends, essentially. And uh, at the time, he was in the aerospace business and was tired of punching the clock, so he traded that career for crunching different numbers in terms of budgets and food costs and beer costs and things like that. Uh, Kinfolk now has expanded uh, and has its own clothing line, bar, nightclub, cafe, uh, and more uh, here in Brooklyn and until very recently Tokyo. And we'll talk about what happened with the Tokyo space as well. Thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Ryan, let's, uh, let's start with what is Kinfolk? Well, Kinfolk has changed over the last... I think we've been in business now for 10 years. Um, and Congratulations. We start, that's, a, that's a big milestone. Yeah, thank you. Um, it started out just really being like a project-based design idea. Um, we, a group of friends got together. We were kind of sick of what we were doing. At the time, we decided we all had different skills. We could put them together as kind of a collective and start projects, creative projects of some sort. And some of them, you know, we never knew how long they would last. Some might last a week. Some might last a month. Some might be, you know, we didn't have an idea. It was just like we want to do project-based creative projects. And so, um, you know, we started a couple they didn't work they worked we ended up one of the first ones that caught on was we wanted to make bicycles um and that came from the idea that we were traveling back and forth to japan picking up used karen bicycles that at the time were really undervalued in japan and overvalued in the u.s and got it we could go buy a bicycle for $300 and come back and sell it for 700 and that would just pay for our plane tickets and our right. food and lodging while we were there. And it was just kind of a way to hang out and go back to Japan because uh, Maceo McNiff, my partner, um, at, him and I at the time um, had a long history with Japan. We'd been going to Japan for 10 years, 15 years almost at that point. And so we just had a lot of friends there and, and, and a lot of connections. We both had lived there in the past. Um, so this was just a way for us to kind of enjoy what we were doing. And so that was the first project that kind of, you know, became more than just, you know, a couple day thing that we were doing for making t-shirts or whatever. Um, and we ended up at the time we were buying these used bicycles and, and we found a builder, an old Japanese, um, bicycle builder and we talked him into building frames and under our name and we didn't have a name at the time we came up with kenfolk so we started making we started the kenfolk bicycle company that was our <laughs> first real creative project and, and where were those made in japan um they're made in kobe cool um and they still are today we actually use a different um builder than our original builder kusaka we use a, a builder by the name of raijin um but the quality is the same and you know, we don't make as many as we used to it's kind of something that um, it has lost steam, not in the sense that we, we care less about it. It's just um, focuses elsewhere, and it's kind of the niche project. And people come to us two or three times a year, and we build them a bicycle. But, Got it. Um, so you know, so it, so it started with your interest in Japan. What led you to Japan initially? That's so. It's kind of a long story, um, but a, a, a very interesting one. Basio, myself, and my really good friend Jameson, all... I actually didn't work for Katsu, but Basio and Jameson worked for um, a friend of ours in Portland, Oregon. We were all living there at the time. This was 1995, I think. Um, 
named Katsu. He has, uh, he's still there in Portland. He has a place called the Compound Gallery um, in downtown Portland. A couple other businesses. He makes these really beautiful scarves out of um, uh, old Japanese fabrics that he reclaims. Um, so they, they were working for him at the time, and his business back then was importing, exporting. Um, of goods, he would mostly export like Levi's and shoes. Nike shoes were big in Portland. The company's based there, so right. you could find really rare Nike shoes like at thrift stores and things. So like they would buy these. You know, he was buying Levi's and Nikes and all these vintage clothes and shipping them to Japan, and then he would take Japanese toys and bring them back and sell them in the U.S. Right. So there's a lot of going back and forth because the I, anime and manga thing had taken off here. But there weren't people really importing the specific toys and things from there. It makes sense. I mean, the 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 the, the sort of on the ground economic trade of it is fascinating to me because now, right? I mean, fast forward to 2017, almost anything you can just get. Right. You could just pull out your phone. Yeah, there was no internet back and then. And be like, I want <laughs> I want this thing from Japan, and if you're willing to pay for the shipping, you can have it. It's not hard. Yeah, I mean, he's probably one of three retailers in right. the U.S. that had it, this stuff, you know? And, yeah. and it, you know, I, I don't know how people would get into it, but the toys are weird. You know, they're very, like, you know, some of them were very sexual and some of them were very violent and weird. And, you know, it's like it, it magna, magna is weird. It's just, yep. like, off cultural from the U.S. Yeah. So um, people who were into it were very into it. And he, so he had a very good business. Um and so there was just a lot of going back and forth because no one wanted to pay import tax, no one wanted to pay shipping, and so he would started sending all of us to Japan. Ah, so so you guys were essentially you were like clothing and toy mules. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, did that for a couple years, and, and so you would you you'd fly from Portland. You'd go to Japan with a suitcase filled with Levi's and Nikes. Right. And then you'd, like, meet a guy and, like, trade for toys or... <laughs> there was, yeah. A f um, we... He had partners in Japan and, and you know, sometimes you'd stay for a week. Sometimes you'd stay for a couple days. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we, a after a while you got to know people and made some of the greatest friends ever and actually spent a lot of time there. Um, and <laughs> the... F funny story that I want to uh, mention that brings me back to Nato. Sure. Um, <laughs> it was the very first food I ate when I was in Japan, and it I got picked up from the airport, Narita Airport, and drove into the closest kombini, the closest 7-Eleven, or whatever it was, and, and the guys in the, in, in the, in the, we got picked up in like a Volkswagen bus kind of thing. And they were like, well, you can only stay in Japan or ever come back if you like this one food. <laughs> and they're just plain and practically drunk because right. nobody likes Because Westerners hate <laughs> they, it. They hate yeah, it. Yeah, Westerners all hate it. And I'm like, you know, and I have a pretty strong stomach. And sure. I'm like, okay, fine. And I, I ate it and I really liked it. And they were all so upset that yeah, I actually yeah. liked the food. Um, and I guess I, I should explain a little bit for listeners who may not know about natto. So in the fermentation of the soybeans, the the bacteria create this like snot-like 
stringy texture to the beans. And in the West, we just like that is not a texture that we are used to eating at all. Yeah. And it has a, sometimes has a slight ammonia smell to it. Um, and just it's something that people generally, Westerners, look at it or taste it or smell it or see it. And they're just like, I don't want to eat that. I also really like it. The first time I ever ate it was in Nagoya. And I went to a restaurant for breakfast alone. I like went to a Ryokan and I got up in the morning by myself and I like went out, spoke almost no Japanese and I went to this cafe and I saw someone else eating it and I was like, uh, Nato Kudasai and they looked at me like they they like they thought I said the wrong thing. They didn't think I really <laughs> wanted to try it and then I like pointed at this guy's dish and I was like, Kore, Kore and so they brought it to me and they were like, I could tell that everyone who worked there was kind of like eyeing me for my first bite to yeah. see what I thought about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There were the six of us in the van. They all turned around and looked at me like, right, like expecting me to just throw it up or like spit it out <laughs> or whatever. I was like, oh, this is actually kind of good. Yeah. The texture, of course, it takes some getting used to, but yeah. the taste is excellent. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one thing I often tell people is that like, you know, it is often dressed. I mean, the Japanese are incredible with the stuff you sprinkle on mm. food, whether it's spicy or a flavor or a condiment or whatever. So there's a lot of things that sort of can go with natto mm. that change it from just being this mass of like snotty beans. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite is like the spicy mustard. Yeah. yeah. Totally. <clears throat> so you were going back and forth to Japan a bunch and you made a bunch of friends there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as Kinfolk expanded, I mean, you, you mentioned to me right before we started the show that the Kinfolk bar that was in, uh, it was in Nakameguro, mm-hmm. right? In Tokyo, that that is now closed recently. But what right. w- was, did that come first? Was that the first physical space of Kinfolk? Yeah, that was, that was the f- first physical location. And, we, in creating this bicycle company, um, we were there a lot and we said we needed a place to hang out. We need a showroom. We need somewhere where people can go and look at these bicycles. So uh, a friend of ours somehow was connected with this other guy who was leaving town. It was a Westerner. He was leaving town, but he had built out in the top store of an old Japanese building, like a house, a bar. And he just had it as a clubhouse. And so I was like, well, that's kind of a good idea. We'll just have it as a showroom during the day and sit there and hang out and drink beers at night. Perfect. And then we realized, wow, this is kind of, this kind of works. And people started coming more and more and there'd be five people a night and then it turned into 10 people a night. And, you know, it wasn't very big. I think max capacity is 25 or 30 people. And it was on an upper floor. It was on the second floor yeah. in Nakamura, which is a really a very Williamsburg type neighborhood. Sure. Of, Tokyo um and it it just turned into this like cultural hub of Tokyo for the time and everybody or a lot of people who'd come in from out of town whether you know who were into the creative industries artists musicians designers um would all stop by and kind of see what's going on in Tokyo kind of became a you know concierge to um, the Western world there for a while, and, and it helped that you know Nike and, and Adidas all had creative studios in the neighborhood, and so it just kind of became it was just, it was a, it was, a, it was a hub you know we of of, um, of people at the time and it was great and so unfortunately buildings in Japan don't last very long I think the average lifespan of a building is fifteen maybe twenty years and yeah. this was a fifty year old building. Um, it was really cool because there wasn't a single nail in the whole building. Wow. Um, it was all tongue and groove type joinery, Japanese joinery. Um, 
so it's sad to see it go but the the land owner decided that you know I, I, there might even be a government stipulation you have to get rid of buildings of certain age there's a um, I forget if it was I forget where it was it might have been Freakonomics one, one of those radio shows podcasts like that did a show a couple of years ago about real estate in Japan and how unlike here where we hold on to old buildings and there's a lot more value to old buildings in Japan it's the land right and so very often in Japan when someone buys a piece of property they tear down the old building and build a new one and they said I think the average cycle is like 15 or 20 years yeah and and actually the interesting thing about that is that building like a piece of property with an old building on it is less is less valuable than a piece of property that's has no building on it right. because it costs a lot of money to get rid of you know to get yep. rid of that building yeah. so it's it's like it has actually you know negative value so right whereas here you can't buy an empty lot with help from the bank right what it, the bank wants is the building right exactly not the land yeah, yeah. yeah so it's gone um, I, the building was torn down about three. Three months ago, four months ago, um, we're considering going back and back out there. Um, but you know, we now have kind of set a standard or a precedent of having more involved spaces. Sure. Um, and we can't really go back into a space like we had done before. So going back and doing another space would take a lot more effort than the first space took. And, you know, Japan's very expensive and there are complications with operations. Um, so we're just taking our time yeah. and hopefully we get back out there. And if not, then, you know, it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about your spaces in Brooklyn. So you have two right. next to each other on Wythe Avenue uh, between North 11th and North 10th Street. Yeah, so... <clears throat> I was living um, in in Japan at the time, and Maceo was living here in Brooklyn, and we both have a mutual friend, Paul, um, from Colossal Media, um, who we've been friends with since the early 90s in Portland. He's from Portland as well. And Maceo was sitting out there drinking beers because... But Paul's Colossal Shop is across the street right. from our, our space on... And, uh, and anyone who has been in New York City in the last 10 years and seen a hand-painted billboard on a building right. pretty much was painted by Colossal. Correct, yeah. So they were out there, like they still do today, drinking beer after work, sitting in the opening of the warehouse, and he saw a real estate agent walk across the street and put up a for lease sign. So when the real estate agent left, he walked over toward town... <laughs> And called the next day and, and secured a lease on North 11th and Wythe and uh, called me up. and was like, hey, I secured a lease. I need the money to pay for it. And I don't know what we're going to do with it. And I'm like, but it's, but yeah, but we have the space. Right? But we have the space. And I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, what neighborhood is it? And at the time, there wasn't much over there. Right. It was pretty bleak. Um, it was kind of the thoroughfare between Greenpoint and Williamsburg. That was kind of a plus, but there was nothing... No retail, no bars, restaurants, hotels. What year was that? You guys got that this lease? was eight years ago. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so they had, I guess, they had just started to build the East River State Park, like right. to take that land over from it. It was just an empty field. and yeah. Right. Brooklyn Brewery was still there, yep. and Brooklyn Bowl had just opened. Right. They had broke ground on the wound, or the, um, the hotel. It the Wife, yeah. The Wife Hotel had just broken ground, so... 
So I was like, okay, cool. I guess I'm moving to New York. <laughs> Packed my stuff up, uh, moved to New York, and we spent the next year figuring out how to get enough money and resources to build out um, at the time, which was still is a cafe um, and lounge. So that was our first spot. Um, and we've done <clears throat> quite a few food pop-ups in there over the last eight years. Um, currently, we just started a new one. The guys from Keqing are now serving food over oh, there. Oh, nice. So they're doing like a Korean-style fried chicken oh, awesome. um, and bento lunch. Oh, it's great. Oh, it's open for lunch. It's right. open for lunch, oh, yeah. Come by. Um, we're doing lunch from uh, noon to 6, and then we will do late-night food on the weekends, and then eventually we'll start doing brunch and dinner. That's rad. Yeah, I mean, you guys have, have sort of incubated a bunch of people that have gone on to other things, right? We have, uh, yeah. You know, Asco started there. Right. Um, uh, Yuji Ramen, Ramen started yeah. in your space, so. Yeah, and, and that was kind of the initial concept was, hey, we want, you know, with this space, we want to be an incubator of ideas. Yeah. Um, and, you know, being a, being a bar and a cafe um, and a food establishment, we don't, I don't know anything. I don't know a lot enough about food to cook it. <laughs> Um, so, uh, at least for somebody else, yeah. <laughs> that's not really close to me. <laughs> um, so we just reached out and we kept reaching out to people. Um, and we just find people who were passionate about what they did. And so we'd bring them in, sort of incubate them. And we did, you know, Yuji, actually Maharlika, which was a Filipino, right. um, food. I'm not actually sure if they're still doing it now, but they were our first and they did it for about six months. And then Yuji Ramam. And Frey, which was the first uh, incubation of Aska. Right. Um, they did it at the same time. And then we ended up going, changing it. Aska changed, or Frey changed their name to Aska. And they went on to get a Michelin star in our space. And now they have their own restaurant. And Yuji moved on to have his own space, too. Yeah. Um, so it's great. So I'm hoping that, you know, these Keaching guys take off and it's great. You know, I'd like to keep them from a little bit longer just because it seems like a really good fit for us. Right. Yeah. It seems to fit. You'll get more people in for lunch and then give you the opportunity to do late night when the bar is really hopping. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then next door to that, you have a clothing store and an event space. Yeah. So when we first moved in, we were there, we got it open and there was an art gallery next door and I would just... And I love the space. The space was like this big open warehouse with 20-foot ceilings and just really vast open space. And I was always in my mind, I want I want that space. I want that space. And the gallery ended up, after we were there for about two and a half years, moving back to the city where they had originated from. This was like an outpost where they'd have larger pieces. Um, and the landlord, you know, allowed us to move in. And, you know, we got some funding and built um, built out an event space and uh, part of that event space the front of it we did a clothing store so at that time that was the time when we started okay well we kind of have a following for this like creative i you know conceptual company that does a bunch of weird stuff none of it really gels or makes sense together <laughs> but they do you know every once in a while they do something really cool and so we just said hey let's make some t-shirts and hats and and a good friend of mine, Jay Perry, who I made, who I met while he's in Japan, he's working for some clothing companies, decided to come on and take over um, building a line of clothes for us. And then so we were like, hey, well, if we have clothes, you might as well have a retail shop to sell our clothes yep. and, and, and buy skills now. And so, yeah, that's kind of the, how the space evolved. Cool. 
We're going to take a short uh, station break and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio. And when we come back, uh, we'll talk a little bit more. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, growing up where you grew up. Grew up on the West Coast, but now you're, you know, entrenched in New York. Okay, great. issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls, but here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine, and how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cooking machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. It is Wednesday, May 24th, and I'm here in the studio. Uh, I like to sort of think of, sometimes I think of the studio as a fishbowl. Sometimes I think of Roberta's as the fishbowl. <laughs> We're sitting next to the sort of indoor-outdoor, what was once a yard behind Roberta's with a, I think it had a Mercedes like 240D sitting here something like that was sitting on the ground there but anyway uh we're in the back of roberta's at heritage radio studios and ryan carney from kinfolk is my guest today uh if you're just tuning in we talked a little bit about what kinfolk is and does and now ryan i want to want to ask you a little bit about your your personal history so you grew up in uh in bakersfield mm-hmm. and then moved to washington and sort of were a, a you know what i would Sounds to me like you were very entrenched in the West Coast, and now you're in the East Coast. So, can you talk a little bit about growing up in Bakersfield and what that was like? Yeah, I was so I was born in Olympia, Washington. Got My uh, grandparents and aunts and uncles, and majority of the family still live up there. Um, when I was six. My family moved to Bakersfield, California. So I didn't, I didn't really know much of the Pacific Northwest as a kid. Um, spent a lot of summers going up there. Um, so yeah, most of my upbringing that I remember is from Bakersfield, which um, <laughs> the day I graduated high school, I left town <laughs> and I didn't really appreciate it. And now I actually really appreciate going back there. My parents still live there. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I appreciate it as a town. You know, it's it's not a very pretty town. It's right. actually quite ugly yeah. <laughs> and there's not much there, but... <clears throat> It is really central to a lot of uh, other places in California that are quite beautiful. Yeah, um, it's it's you know it's not that close to the ocean, but it's fairly close to the ocean. It's really close to the mountains that are really pretty up in, in Kernville and um, the Kern River. Yeah, um, 
But growing up in Bakersfield was interesting. Um, skateboarded, surfed when I could make it to the beach, listened to, you know, mostly punk music. Um, and, you know, that... There weren't many of us, which right. was cool. Right. Um, we There was probably a group uh, at my age of 40 to 50 of us, and we all were spread out all over town, all went to different high schools. In fact, m- of all my, f- I probably had very few, very few of my close friends actually went to the same high school. Um, but every day after high school, we'd all meet at the same park and sit there and hang out until the sun went down. Then we'd go home and we'd do it again the next day. Um, but it created a really interesting dynamic with us as like this, you know, the skater kids. And, you know, this is skateboarding wasn't very popular at the time because it had its 80s, you know, explosion and you know the early 90s it was kind of still dead so there wasn't a lot of people into it um and and it created this great friendship with people that i'm still really close with um because there wasn't you know you were either a farmer you know farmer cowboy or a construction worker or an oil field worker that was like all bakersfield had um so there's just this weird like outcrop of weird punk kids who skateboarded nobody even knows what that was at the time you know like there weren't skate parks your mom didn't drive you to the skate park you kind of went to the you know you went to the park and made your own ramps and friends backyard and stuff so um you know and a lot of my friends at the time were into bands and you know we bakersfield actually there was a couple people who um locally who brought a lot of really good bands into town uh, surprisingly you know I got to see you know like Fugazi play at the high school gymnasium and, nice. and things like that you know which was like really random but there weren't big auditoriums so yeah um, well you know, and these bands would always stop because it was in between San Francisco and LA right and that's and, and San Francisco to LA is actually a pretty long haul if you're gonna do it in a single shot right yeah so we we were always a stopover so we got to see a lot of good stuff um, so yeah Bakersfield was, it was interesting you know um like I said, I got out, yeah. you know, everyone did. And I don't, I still, I guess I have some friends that stayed around, but most of them, uh, either went to San Francisco, went North San Francisco, went South to Los Angeles. And I think there's very few of us who actually ended up out here out East. Mm. Um, Interesting. Um, are, are any of those people involved, uh, peripherally? Like, do you, do you, do you still run into them in the kind of world that you've created with kinfolk? I, you know, I don't, there's not, I think there's four or five, um, there's four or five of us who are here and they're all off doing their own things. It's cool. You know, um, everyone came out here for a purpose. Yeah. And so, you know, everyone's been, you know, successful in the, in the venture that they came out here for. Cause right. you kind of have to be, you know, yeah. a kid from Bakersfield who's kind it's, you know, Bakersfield's kind of a weird, it's like kind of country, kind of suburban, zero culture unless yeah. you're into country music <laughs> uh you kind of just have you know you get immersed in new york and you're like what is this we didn't you know yeah like, it's just completely different from anything we grew up with so do you consider yourself a new yorker now no <laughs> <laughs> um i don't you know i've been here I, my first stint was back in nine, 98 99 i lived here for two years um and I left back to California to go to college, um, and then I've come back. I came back out here now, and I think I've been here for eight years. And 
um, my heart's still out west, and and I love it out here, and I spend a lot of time in the outdoors here. Um, <clears throat> but I I I imagine at some point I will probably head out back west. It might not be California, but it'll be. Uh, you know, west of the Rockies. Sure. sure. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a thing that happens out there where your access to the outdoors is different than yeah. your access to the outdoors here, and and the outdoors there is so much bigger. It's I feel like fast, is what it re- yeah. is what it really is about. Because you can get, I mean, you can get to, you know, you can get and go hike part of the Appalachian Trail from New York without too much, you know, trouble in less than an hour or so, hour and a half, depending on traffic. Like, it's right. not that bad. I mean, you know, right. if you're going to the mountains from Bakersfield, like, really into the mountains, you know, it's, it's an hour, hour and a half. It's about the same amount of time. But right. but out west, you're covering a lot more mileage in that hour and a half, I feel like. Right. And you're getting to a wilderness that's way bigger. It's way vast, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I spend, you know, I get out of town probably once a week. Um, me and uh, my close group of friends now we were really into riding dirt bikes um so that puts us out in nature yeah um but it's also you know two hours to get anywhere where we can do where that can ride yeah and so that you know it's you spend four hours in the car to ride for four hours it's it's a little bit weighing on and not weighing on the experience but on the availability of doing it yep. you know you can't just be like okay i'm gonna go out for a couple hours and come back you've got to really make a day of it you know as you know running multiple businesses you don't always get that much time free so um but i love it here i'll always have there'll always be a part of my heart that'll be here and i'll hopefully always have you know a place that cool you know i consider new york somewhat my home Did you have any more time to think about the question I emailed you before the show? If, uh, if you could have dinner with anyone, who would it be? <laughs> you know, I, I actually, funny, I was taking a shower this morning. And I was like, I know he's going to ask me that question. <laughs> um, and I, I figured out why I couldn't answer it. I think it changes a lot. And sure. I think, you know, it's funny at the t- at like, and I was like, well, who would it be right now? And unfortunately, um, I'm not sure if you know who he is. Nikki Hayden is, um, an American motorcycle racer. Yep. Um, yeah. Just passed away. Just passed away. So, uh, if I was going to answer, ask that today, it'd be him. Be him. Yeah. yeah. Just cause he's like in my head and like, I really <clears throat> valued his participation. You know? Sure. Um, I want to ask about your dog, Roger. Yeah. Roger is a funny story. So he was found tied up to a fence in red hook, um, about a year ago now. And, and my friend had a shop across the street and saw him out there for about six hours and walked over and brought him water a couple times. And and then eventually was like, I got to do something right. with this dog. Yeah. And, you know, went to a couple other people's foster. And he's kind of a little, he's, you know, he's like a small pit bull mix of some sort. And he's a little maniac. Um, and, and I was like, at the time, wasn't really looking for a dog, but I've kind of always had dogs in my life. And my friend Miriam was like, you should take Roger. And I think at his name, at the time, his name was Buddy. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, well, I'm going to rename him. Roger's not much better than Buddy, but yeah. it's, um, he's great. He's, uh, I try to take him with me everywhere I can and, yeah. and spend a lot of time with him. He's, a, you know, a, a rescue. He's two years old now. A rescue has, he acts as a two-year-old, acts like a one-year-old. So I think, you know, give him another year and he'll act like a normal two-year-old dog and be great. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, what is your favorite thing about running your own business? 
no one telling me what to do. <laughs> I, I think that and the freedom, um, which is something that you have to create in the business. And a lot of people make that mistake. That's and a I've, really good point. And I've made that mistake for the first five years I was in business is thinking that you have to do it all yourself and that you're tied to it and not being able to um, capitalize on the fact that you this is something you have created and you're putting your energy into it and you put it how you can take it out however you want and if that means free time then you set it up to where you have more free time i think that's the thing i've learned to enjoy the most out of it it's like hey if i want to take a couple days off then i figure out how to make that happen whereas if i was sitting in an office you only get 10 of those a year you know or whatever it is yeah yeah No, that's a, that's a, it's sage advice to anyone starting or even running a business. Um, you know, I find that to be one of the biggest challenges in running a business is taking the time, um, and realizing that the, you know, it's important to remember that the to-do list is going to be insanely long anyway. It never ends. It's never going to end. You never get through everything you want to do in a day or a week or a month or a year. So, you know, it'll be there when you come back, take a day off here and there. Um, what's next? for for kinfolk i mean i you know do you guys do you guys have specific plans or is it kind of things come up and you decide if you're gonna sort of move on them and do them so throughout the history of the company we've always been really opportunistic so we you know never really created a master plan we've always just capitalized on opportunity when it's come right now we we were supposed to open a place in Los Angeles a couple of years ago, and that really set us back because it didn't happen. Um, we made some mistakes, like all business people do, realized we'd put a lot of time and money into a project that wasn't going to happen. So, you know, a year and a half ago, a year ago, we just said, hey, let's just pull back the reins and really focus on what we have because we have created something great and we should focus on that. So, the last year and moving probably for the next six months or a year. We were really just like, hey, let's. We, we've got two spaces. We had a third of the time. We have a clothing company. Let's put our energy into those. Make those really successful. Allow us to go to a position where the next opportunity is maybe something we create, something that doesn't come to us. And we've really focused like on ourselves. You know, it's like yeah. a retrospect, or introspective. We're just really focused on ourselves right now. And I think, you know, give us six months, a year from now, we'll probably start branching out again to do another project. Cool. And uh, will you ever do a magazine? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we can. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I I, I would have thought about that, actually. Um, But I don't know if I would want to. I I think if I was going to do some sort of media uh, outlet, I don't know if it would be a magazine. I think we'd try to find something else. I think it uh, uh, well, one idea that I have that I, yeah. would, I would love to do, I'd like to travel um, on a dirt bike from New York to Los Angeles. Oh, cool. That's something I've thought about for the like last couple of years, yeah. something I really want to do. Um, so I'd like to make a film doing that. That'd yeah, be that'd be awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with early automobiles. Hmm. And so I used to remember, I used to like read these accounts of like early automobile races. And there was like a New York, I think there was a New York to LA, uh, automobile race in like the twenties. Oh, cool. 
when there were no highways and there were barely roads, right? And, you know, I mean, there was, there was I think there was also a New York to Paris race that started in New York and went west and then got on a boat to Asia and then went all the way through Asia and then all the way through Europe to Paris That's in, cool. like, sometime in the early 20s. And so reading the accounts of that, of, like, you know, they had to take the cars apart to go over the mountains and stuff and, like, have Sherpas carry pieces. <laughs> and you're talking about vehicles that are, like, you know, not design they're not made of aluminum they're not super right. light they're like you know truck sized compared to now and um so that kind of like endurance style event i've always been fascinated by yeah one of my favorite uh podcasts is adventure rider radio hmm. and they do <clears throat> they document people who do those types of trips um yeah. on motorcycles and they do it all over the world it's really amazing some really interesting characters come out of that show and I think the other thing about doing something like that is that um, you would have the ability to show it as a as it as it really is, right? I mean, there'd be some amazing moments. You'd probably meet some really cool people, but there'd also be some really difficult right. stuff that happens. And exactly. you know, um, before the show, you know, we were talking about the whole like the the, the viewpoint of of Kinfolk Magazine and and how it's kind of. Uh, uh, it's almost like Le Vie en Rose, right? It's like rose-colored glasses kind of thing or like the van life phenomenon Instagram right. where, you know, I, a friend of mine recently tuned me into a, uh, a, a sort of uh, an account that exists to sort of counter that that is uh, you didn't sleep there. <laughs> that reposts pictures from these people from and you know like you you know who who are showing off this life that just can't possibly be real. Yeah, it's not real, and it's if it was real, I don't see how it'd be very enjoyable because it's you know the great parts about life are the parts that aren't perfect. Yeah, and you want to pro you know put out there that you know and make people aspirational about some lifestyle that doesn't exist it's it's really sad unfortunately and, and people have bought into it and, and it seems to work and a lot of people you know i have friends who you know have bicycle instagram blogs that they go take beautiful pictures of their ride and it's all they take and they get paid money to do that and they don't take <laughs> pictures of the guy with a broken arm being pulled out of the woods right you know? like, so uh yeah, I, I think if we did a film based on that trip, or when I do a film based on that trip, it'll be as much of the real part of it as possible. Sure. I mean, it, it, it in a weird, I mean, in a, in a sort of very dark way, <clears throat> reminds me of the, um, what the, the documentary that was made about Apocalypse Now mm, and the making of it. Um, I think it's called, I think it's called Hearts of Darkness, um, but just about like, you know, what that was really like to yeah. make Apocalypse Now and how hard it was and based on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and all that stuff. Cool. Yeah, so, I'll take a look at it. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we're, we've reached the end of our time here this week for Feast Your Ears. <clears throat> Is there anything else, Ryan, anything going on at, uh, at Kinfolk? You mentioned the, the current restaurant uh, that's in there. Yep, kitchen's in there. Um, really, that's the, the main thing right now. I think we just dropped uh, our clothing line, just dropped this new season. Um, so if you get a chance, stop by there. Come have some food. Our, our cocktail program is always pretty good. Um, and uh, we always have fresh programming on the weekends, DJs, and, and live music. So. 
Yeah, it's great. It's a great place to hang out. So if you're in uh, if you're in Williamsburg uh, and, you know, I know the hot thing on that corner is to go up to the rooftop bar or the other rooftop bar around the corner. <laughs> but uh, definitely check out Kinfolk. The vibe is really nice and it's a it's a good place to hang out. And then you don't have to wait in line to go up an elevator. Right. <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears this week. Big thank you to David Tattashore, who engineers this show. And you can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at Heritage Radio Network. Org and on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram at The Foodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.